We've got two federal professional union interviews for you today, both concerning the Justice Department. Before we get to the immigration judge's situation, fresh complaints from another group at Justice. Assistant U.S. attorneys say the Justice Department's salary system means they earn less than other government attorneys who work under the regular GS system. They say it hurts recruitment and retention. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the vice president of the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys, Adam Hanna. I think that there's some historical context here going back for many years in terms of how the U.S. attorney's offices have been run and compensated. And it really flows out of a recognition that every district is different and every office is different in terms of the setting and the place where people work and what that sort of area is like in terms of uh, the market for attorneys. And, you know, going back into the 60s, assistant U.S. attorneys were actually paid based on how busy and productive their offices were. So there was a time where the busiest offices were able to pay their AUSAs the most and less busy offices were paid less. So I think that growing from that historical standpoint, the Justice Department has always wanted a lot of flexibility on how it pays assistant United States attorneys. But unfortunately, that flexibility has created some real disadvantages for AUSAs as opposed to our colleagues who work as attorneys in the other litigating divisions of the Department of Justice. Understandably, this is probably a disparity that impacts people in certain phases of their career. How does this pay disparity look as AUSAs advance in their careers? That's right. I think that the disparity is greatest in probably the first 10 to 15 years of an AUSA's career. Over time, uh, I think that AUSAs tend to get maybe closer and closer in terms of pay parity with with attorneys on the GS scale. So, you know, once you've been around for 20 or 25 years, maybe the difference isn't that great. But, you know, that means our attorneys are going undercompensated for decades of their working lives and, and really impacting every aspect of their, their earnings and their retirement in that way. What impact does this pay disparity ultimately have on the workforce? It's obviously got to have an effect on the longevity of how long AUSAs choose to remain in these jobs and within federal service. Absolutely. And we hear that all the time from AUSAs across the country that, you know, they love their jobs, they want to stay in these positions, but it's just simply unsustainable to work at the pay levels that many of our sort of junior colleagues are are working at. And it's a real problem for retention, too, because large law firms love to hire folks who have been assisting United States attorneys. I mean, they come in, they've been well-trained by the federal government. They've gotten the best of training, the best of resources. And it simply doesn't take that much money to lure some AUSAs away because uh, of this massive disparity in pay. And that's not to say that our colleagues aren't loyal, but at the end of the day, we all have families to support. We all have uh, desires to save for college for our kids and put money back for retirement so that we can have a, a nice life in retirement. And It's just really unfortunate that that we have to see so many people leave the system because they just can't afford to remain in their jobs. You know, folks have coming out of law school with enormous student loan debts. I think a lot of people feel pressure to up their earnings. And AUSAs, I mean, we, we have attorneys working at the GS 11 level and appearing in federal district court in front of federal district judges and and litigating some of the most serious cases 
that are on the federal judiciary's docket. And they're, they're doing this at a rate of pay that simply doesn't exist anywhere else in the Department of Justice. It strikes me that we have heard from, I think, a lot of agencies, you know, on this pay issue, a very familiar refrain of, you know, the mission being a key retention tool. And, you know, a lot of ways, the the mission of what AUSAs are doing here is unique. They can't quite do this work, you know, anywhere else. But it seems to me, based on what you're saying, that that retention and that mission has its limits in some regards. Absolutely. You know, AUSAs are certainly loyal employees of the Department of Justice who really desire to do the work of being federal prosecutors and federal civil attorneys representing the government. But the pay can just be unbearable for some. And frankly, the skills are very transferable. AUSAs spend almost 100 percent of their time in federal court litigating substantial disputes. And, and that's a skill set that's very desirable to the, the private sector. Moreover, the skill or sort of the, you know, the experience of, of representing government agencies and knowing how government leaders think is similarly very valuable to the private sector. So we have folks who I think their desire would be to stay in their careers and continue to do the important work of being a Department of Justice lawyer. But at the end of the day, you know, like I've talked about before, they have these external financial pressures in their lives that I think often are, you know, making them switch careers into the private sector just so that they can meet the needs of their families. I understand that NASA has voiced these concerns with the Justice Department of the previous administration, of the Trump administration. How ultimately did those talks go? Well, Jory, we've been in talks with Every administration that has come through the government over the last 20 to 30 years about this topic, and sometimes we have some success in those discussions and other times we don't. Ultimately, a lot of times the response is that there simply isn't the money available to make a change that would help AUSAs out on this on this note. But ultimately, we, we think that the financial commitment is not that large. It might cost between 40 and $50 million to equalize the pay of AUSAs to what our folks, our, our colleagues and the, the rest of the Justice Department are making. And uh, that sounds like a lot of money, but in the context of the federal budget, it really isn't. You know, Department of Justice leaders have always been open and communicating with us about this issue. We've had a lot of good dialogue with leaders both in this administration and in the last one. And uh, I think it's just a matter of coming up with a plan to, to fix this inequity once and for all. Yeah. And just a point of clarification there, when you say that you've brought this up with every administration, this has also been run up the chain to leadership of the DOJ under the Biden administration? We have had some preliminary discussions with department leadership under the Biden administration, even though that administration is uh, you know, about a year old now, some of the organizational work of the department is still not fully in place. Uh, by that, I'm, I'm talking about the Attorney General's Advisory Committee, which advises the Attorney General on important matters like these. So, so some of the things we've heard back from the department in this administration are that they're receptive to our concerns, but the advisory committee has not been formed yet. And so that's really where they want these concerns to, to be addressed first. We're optimistic that, that we'll be able to make some progress, but you know the, the department is telling us that it's just not quite ready to take a close look at, at this question yet. Adam Hanna, the vice president of the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, 
And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we had a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffel Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.